Peter Kraft, a professor of philosophy at Boston College, is a devout Roman Catholic and solid theologian. He wrote a short book entitled Jesus Shock. Jesus Shock. The thesis of the book is that to understand Jesus means to be shocked. To be shocked. If you are not shocked by Jesus, that means you really don't understand him. I totally concur with that statement of Peter Kraft. Peter Kraft also said this, those who meet Jesus always experience either joy or its opposite, either foretaste of heaven or foretaste of hell. Not everyone who meets Jesus is a police, and then not everyone is empty, but everyone is shocked. Everyone is shocked. Jesus does not leave anyone complacent or lazy in their own comfort zone. I'm not saying Jesus is intentionally annoying or obnoxious. He certainly comforts us shockingly by loving people like a prostitute and the tax collectors that we saw two, year, two weeks ago while confronting us by offending religious leaders and our own religiosity. It is my prayer that everyone is shocked by Jesus and all by his radical love during this Lent. With that, let's read our passage today. Luke chapter 13, verse 1 to 9. Once again, we're going to read it responsibly. Now, there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I'll tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will perish. Or those 18 who died when power in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all others living in Jerusalem? I'll tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for the fruit on it, but did not find. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now, I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I will dig around it and fertilize it together. If it bears a fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Flowers fall. Grass withers, but the words of God last forever. Context of today's story was when Jesus was traveling to Jerusalem for the last time, and many were following him from Galilee. As we saw last week in Luke chapter 10, 72 disciples were sent out to announce the news of Jesus to the towns on the way, and God gave them a great success for their preaching and healing ministry. So Jesus' reputation and entourage was growing each day. Then some people brought the serious bad news, sad news to Jesus. Look at the verse 1. Now there are some present at the time who told Jesus about Galileans whose blood Pilate has mixed with their sacrifices. Pilate or Pontius Pilate 
was the fifth Roman governor in Judea from 26 to 36 AD during the reign of Tiberius. Jews hated him for so many ruthless things he committed. For instance, he took up money from the Jerusalem temple for the construction of an aqueduct and the killing all protesting Jews. But we don't know any details about today's incident. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, did not record this tragedy. Perhaps there were so many, and this was one of the many unreported atrocities of a pilot. Just like there are so many unreported atrocities in Ukraine today. This time, Pilate killed a good number of Galilean Jewish pilgrims in the Temple of Jerusalem that people couldn't distinguish human blood from blood of sacrificed animals. Now, more important question, why did these people tell Jesus about this tragedy? They were kind of concerned about Jesus or at least cautioning him since Jesus was also a Galilean Jew, and he was leading a large number of Galileans to Jerusalem temple. So they were telling Jesus that, be careful. You might postpone your trip to uh, visit to Jerusalem. This is not a good time. The crazy pilot just killed your people, Galileans, in the temple. Now, to these concerned people, do you know what Jesus said? Did Jesus say, thank you very much for your concern, I'll be okay. Pray for me. You know, isn't that what you usually expect when we give our concerns to somebody, right? But today, Jesus gave a reply that was nothing short of shock and awe. I almost felt like Jesus had, you know, bit their head off. Twice in verse 3. And five, Jesus answered, unless you repent, you too all perish. Unless you repent, you too all perish. Jesus was telling them, what you need to be concerned about is not me, but about you, yourself. You're the one who really needs to worry because you are facing a greater danger, the judgment of God. Using the, using the concerns of these people, Jesus actually gave them a critical call of a repentance. Critical call of a repentance. Today, Jesus was not softly, tenderly calling. This is not Jesus, you know, we see today. He was calling shockingly and roughly. This urgent call of a repentance applies to all of us today. It is my prayer that we repent ourselves today, especially during this Lenten season. And here in this story, we see three saving concerns of Jesus for us. First, his correction of misunderstanding. Two, his challenge for our urgent repentance. And three, his commitment to help us to repent. First of all, let's find out what Jesus was correcting here. Verse two, Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans who were... Uh, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered that way? I'll tell you, no. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. Oh, those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they are more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? 
I'll tell you, no, unless you repent, you too will all perish. Notice here, verse 2, Jesus said, I mean, looks at Jesus' answers. Again, they didn't ask any question. They simply expressed their concern for him. But looks at Jesus' answers. He responded to them by asking questions, precisely rhetorical questions about guilt. Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than you? Do you think those who died accidentally in the pool of Siloam were more guilty than those who didn't die in Jerusalem? Jesus asked the same question twice. That means emphasis because at the time Jewish people had a wrong theology about suffering. Wrong theology about suffering. They were confused about sin and suffering. Jewish people thought that sin means suffering, suffering means sin. Even though sin definitely brings a suffering, not all suffering comes from sin. Some suffering comes from righteousness. You know, I thank you, Elisha. You pray for all those uh, courageous patriots in Russia, you know, who are speaking against oppression and they're going to jail, not just a couple of weeks, years. They are willingly suffering right now. So, but Jewish people confuse about sin and suffering. One classical biblical example is John chapter 9, when disciples of Jesus saw a, a blind beggar on the roadside, they asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Disciples of Jesus, they assumed that beggars' congenital blindness was caused by sin. Only thing they didn't know, who sin caused it? This was a typical notion of a tragic suffering that Jewish people thought at the time. Whenever they saw terrible tragedy, whether it's committed by uh, another human being, like a pilot, we call it moral evil, or caused by nature, like a fall, 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 you know, falling, fallen tower of a silo and pole, we call it natural evil. They oversimplify the sin and suffering. You know, some biblical scholars think that such a wrong assumption came from so-called the hyper-Deuteronomist theology. Hey, what is the Deuteronomist theology? It came from the book of Deuteronomy, especially chapter 30. Before Israelites entered the promised land, what did God say? In order to stay promised land, you need to obey me. Otherwise, I will punish you. Obedience, I will reward thousand generations. Disobedience, I will punish to third or even fourth generation. And uh, Jewish people, they somehow were traumatized by this Deuteronomy theology through their exile and their history. They made it very simple. Anytime they're suffering, there must be sin. What is the problem of such a theology or false theology? problem of such a theology is that one evaluates a human life and God externally and circumstantially. You know, this kind of theology is almost a cousin of a prosperity gospel or a healthy, wealthy gospel. Who has as more suffering is a more guilty and the less blessed by God. Whoever has a less suffering is a less guilty and the more blessed by God. Oftentimes, people of God, including Christians, created this kind of false understanding 
and dangerous assumptions about God and their life. That's why a great American, I might say American Christian writer, Flannery O'Connor from Georgia, once said, while South, America South, is a Christ-centered, I mean, she said, while South is a hardly Christ-centered, it is most certainly Christ-hunted. The American South, so-called the Bible Belt, yet it believed the slavery and deeply entrenched in the radical prejudice. You know, Christians, very often we follow wrong leaders, including presidents, wrong ideas, wrong pastors, wrong, wrong pastors. I'm a pastor, so I can talk about this. Wrong, wrong pastors, wrong, wrong pastors. So once Mark Twain said, if Christ were here, there's one thing he would not be. That is, he would not be a Christian. Think about it. If Christ were here among us, he would not be a Christian. Why? We Christians oftentimes try to tame gospel of God to our comfort level. Something that we can manage. Something that uh, we can kind of uh, nicely put and put it in our whatever heart or pocket or whatever convenient. And Jesus would not and did not share human false assumption about God and others based on external conditions like his fellow Jews. Rather, Jesus gave them a true reality. Unless you repent, you too will all perish. Jesus saying that you are not better than these slaughtered Galileans and you are not luckier than accidentally crushed the Jerusalemites. Your deadly fate is coming unless you repent now. And Jesus saying, do you think dying is bad? There's something worse than dying. That is unrepenting. Why? Unrepenting will bring a perishing. By perishing, Jesus talking about second death according to Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Second death, that is eternal death. Not a physical death, the death of a spirit and everything apart from God. And later Jesus said, in Ma- I mean Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's what we're supposed to be afraid of. If you don't repent, you too all will perish. That's the Jesus call of repentance today. I've been talking to God about Putin, you know, every day during the Lent. And I have a a confession to make. As I've been praying for Putin, in, in every day, every time I hear the news about Ukraine, I found out there is a, a bigger problem than Putin, actually, for me. There is a problem. Problem is not just a Putin in Russia. There is a Putin in Paul Kim's heart. There is a Putin in my heart. Seriously. If I born in Putin's, you know, if I were Putin, could I be better? I'm not sure. You know, two weeks ago, 
I criticize the investment banks. Did you know Goldman Sachs and the Morgan Chase are selling the corporate bond of Russian companies whose debts are so cheap due to the economy sanctions that we brought to them? And some of our church people work at those banks. So I actually tell them that, can anyone in your office that is wrong, it's not right, there's something more precious than profit? This is the worst kind of a capitalism that people are talking about. It's so ruthless, so heartless, that's so, you know, cruel capitalism. You know, after that kind of a self-righteous rant, I was praying after daily breath, and there was a question that raised in my heart by maybe Holy Spirit. But the question is, how about you? If you're the managing director or vice president at Goldman Sachs and Morgan Chase, will you protest it? You know, if your salary is uh, six figures, if your salary or bonus is a half million dollars a year, and if you knew your competitors, other investment banks are making a major killing, would you stand aside with the moral integrity of a financial success? I couldn't say readily, yes, I will, you know, I will still protest or lose my job or even resign. I realized that I need to repent and remove Putin in my heart, not just Putin in Russia. We all fell short of glory of God. Now, let's look at the second saving concerns of Jesus here. Jesus wants to correct our misunderstanding and false perspective with our need for repentance so much that he gave a parable. Look at the verse 6, 7. Then Jesus told this parable, a man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard. He went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for the fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Jesus here turns from Turning the universal judgment in verse 3 and 5, that if you don't repent, you too all perish, to universal mercy, that you are not lucky or better than those tragic victims because of your own goodness or merit, but because of God's mercy. Here, Jesus cautions and challenges them about their idea of a final chance. God gave you a grace period because of his mercy. You are luckier and more blessed simply because you have a little more time to repent and your time is expiring past. So pay attention now. That's what Jesus is saying. For this challenge, Jesus compares their, their situation, his listener situation, to the barren fig tree. You know, analogy of a vine or fig tree is a very common in the Old Testament, especially prophetic books. You know, Israel is often portrayed as a vine and the God as the Yahweh as the uh, owner or farmer. And fig tree usually bear fruit after three or four years. Today, the owner said, he's been coming and looking for fruit for how many years? For three years. That means this tree been at least six years old. 
It was given almost a, a double portion of the time to bear fruit, and it has not produced at all. So owner made a decision to cut it down. In a, manner, in a matter of a, a few minutes, the tree will be cut down. That's the dire situation and shocking warning that Jesus gave to people around him then and us today. You know, bearing fruit is a major theme of the Luke's gospel. You know, earlier Luke chapter 3 verse 5, John the Baptist preached that axe uh, is already at the root of the trees. Every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Do you guys remember Pastor Craig of a First Baptist Church who preached on this text last December? No? Axe is right at the root of the tree. Divine judgment is already at the swing motion. Time flies and flies faster than we realize. And we need to really respond. It's talking about urgency. This parable is talking about urgency. As a John the Baptist talking about urgency. You know, when you really convicted of the Holy Spirit, there is always urgency. There is urgency. You know, beginning of the year, I, uh, the New Year's Eve service, I preached on Psalm you know, 90, prayer of Moses. And there Moses says, Psalm 90, verse 10, the length of our days, 70 at the most 80, but our life is nothing but a labor and sorrow. And they quickly pass and we fly away. We fly away. We fly away. You know, we all know the value of time. But somehow we don't make our time valuable. You know, that's our problem. We know value of time, but we don't make it valuable. William Penn once said, time is what we want most, but at the same time, what we use worst. Many of us are not good time managers. And the Psalm, you know, uh, uh, 90, verse 12, Jesus, I mean, you know, Moses' prayer, the main prayer was, teach us number our days that we may gain part of wisdom. Do you know wisdom comes from counting time or numbering days? Do you count your time? What does it mean to number our days or count our time? That is to see the urgency and speediness of time. You know, we don't have much time. No matter how old you are, you don't have much time. John Paul Sartre, the French you know, philosopher and the writer, once he said, the more sand that escapes from the hourglass of our time, the clearer we, through, we, we see through it. More time passes, or more time we passes, that we realize the clearer the things get. That's why old people are usually associated with the wisdom because they are our glasses, our glasses are emptier than young people's. And see, that's why old people say they can, they can discern the wisdom. Apostle Paul also said about the importance of accounting time. Ephesians 5.15, Paul said, Be careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making most of every opportunity, because the days are evil, Therefore, do not get drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, 
get drunken on the Holy Spirit, not on the, you know, wine. You know, the, the expression that making the most of every opportunity literally means redeeming time. Redeeming time. You know, how do you redeem your time? When we give our time to God. You know, when we recognize that God is the one who created us and created a time, and that He knows how to use a time more effectively than anybody. God is the Lord of all days of our life. And when you recognize and you make a God as every Lord of your day, every day, by giving just, a, you know, whatever portions of your life. You know, those of you taking Livingstone, I intentionally share the story of uh, Billy Sunday, who was a famous baseball player, later became an incredible, uh, uh, you know, almost a national, international, you know, preacher, a crusader. He was a Billy, you know, Billy before Billy, Billy Graham. Billy Sunday. You know how it all started? He was a baseball player, but by grace of God, he met Christ, and he went to a pastor for advice to live out as a Christian life. Pastor knows that ball players, they travel, and they kind of fall around every city. So he said, Billy, just do three things. 15 minutes a day, you let God speak to you. That means read a Bible. Bible, through the Bible, God will speak to you. 15 minutes, you talk you, you talk, talk to God. That is a prayer. And then 15 minutes a day, you talk about God to other people. One great thing about athletes, they are very disciplined. Billy Sunday, just follow that, that, that order. That's how he became great preacher and evangelist in early 20th century. Even 10 minutes a day, read a Bible. 10 minutes, pray. And the, during the day, you don't have to talk or preach to Jesus, but you just, you know, say nice, kind thing in the name of Jesus to those who really need. And tell me how your day went by. I want to take a time here to talk about the time management of a different age group in our church. Because now we have a young, medium, and old. So, young people, especially after college. You know, do you think you have a plenty of time to goof off and, uh, you know, a little bit and uh, relax? You know? Here are my observations. Mid-late 20s are the most wasteful time. A lot of people regret they wasted their mid-20s and the late, late 30s. Yes, many, many. And I don't understand because you're finally done with the school education and you start working and you get money and you have time, and you have, uh, you know, health, and you have uh, friends all over, so traveling, enjoying, exploring. I understand that. I'm not telling you not to do that, you know. But while you do all those things, don't forget the purpose of your life and the priority of gospel that God gave to you. You know, this week was a really, uh, one of the highlights of uh, this week was, Four of our medical school seniors, they all matched the residential program. And uh, three of them had to leave DFW. And I, I, I was happy, at the same time very poignant, because four years ago, you know, at least, you know, uh, some of them came to forest. Forest was a different. We were young. There are not many young trees at forest. You know, we're old trees. But these people, 
made, made a commitment. They took the forest as their home in DFW, and they began to serve. And the two, three years later, some of them four years, what do you see? A lot of young trees. What an awesome testimony. You know, I, I said this, our medical school students, they set the bar high for all the rest of our young people. You know why? Most medical school students that I know, they barely attend the church, let alone serving the house church. Two of our, you know, medical school students, they served as a house church shepherds. You know how much we demand of a, a, a house church shepherds. Medical school students serving as a house church shepherds. This is amazing, amazing. I'm not saying every medical students do. So don't get, don't, you know, only by the conviction and the Holy Spirit. Okay? So, but point is this. Yes, you give your time to God and God will reward you. Hey, how about young parents? Do you think you will have your children for a long time and they will always listen to you? Let me tell you. Soon they will outsmart you and contest you every, every turn of life. Soon they will even correct your English. They will say, don't say phrases like, uh, let's hook up. That's, that's a bad word to say. Let's say that, let's get connected. Oh, man, all the cool phrases that we, 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 you know, we, we grew up and we used are outdated. They changed the meaning. We cannot use them anymore. Don't forget, young parents, our children are most important VIPs in our life. And their time of departure is faster than you realize. And then we don't want to just baptize them, dunk them in the water. We want to make them, we want to prepare them as a disciple maker before they go to college. We don't want to survive a college. We want them to thrive college spiritually. Amen? This is why youth ministry is so important. And we have a great youth teachers. And the parents who don't bring your children to, you know, the older children class and the junior high school class and even high school class, shame on you. You are really missing, missing it out. Now, old people. Where is old people? Today I don't see many old people. I feel like I'm left out here. You know, these empty nesters. Let us really realize something. This is our prime time. Hallelujah. Yes! Yes, empty nesters. We are the new prime time. We are the prime agers. Yes. I don't understand why some parents feel so lonely after their children get married and, you know, uh, move on to different towns. We have a younger children of God to love and serve. You know, I don't have to waste my time in them driving to school and dropping, you know, kids and picking up them and go to another, you know, extracurricular activity. I'm free. I'm free at last from all those extracurricular activities. Now I can serve fully and joyfully. This is a time, our time to shine. Hallelujah, right? Okay, I better stop here. Let me go to conclusion. <laughs> Let's go to third and final saving concerns of Jesus. This is a thing that grabbed my heart. Here we see Jesus' extra care and sacrificial commitment to help our repentance and bearing the fruit. Verse 8. Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year and I will dig around it, fertilize it, if it bears a fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. This unfruitful tree is so lucky to have a caretaker. 
who is willing to give him, give it his best nourishment one more year. By the way, if you are a tree, don't be fooled by this extra, you know, nourishment. You know, tree might say, oh, I must be very important. I must be a very good-looking tree. Well, you are definitely important, but not because you are good, but because your caretaker is good, and he cares for you. You know, he wants to make you fruitful and important. Let us remember we are important, not because we think we're important, because God sees us important. Don't forget that. We are important because Almighty God thinks I am important. You are important. We matter to God. Now, notice the key point of a caretaker. He said, I will dig around the tree. Dig around the tree. It means caretaker's effort is directed at where? The root of the tree. The root of the tree. What is a root? What is the function of the root? Root is where the tree receives the, the water and nourishment daily. It is hidden, but most critical. If a root is dead, tree will die and fall. Simon Bay, French Jewish Christian thinker, said, To be rooted is perhaps the most important and the least recognized need of a human soul. She's absolutely right. Tree, I mean, root is a hidden. But without root, healthy, growing root, tree cannot bear the fruit. So question I have for you, where is your root rooted? What kind of soil is a, your, 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 your root? The soul, your heart is rooted. Repentance for me is when my soul is rooted on the cross of Christ. That is, for me, is a Christian repentance. Christian repentance is when my heart and soul is connected to the blood, the cry, the shame, the agony of a Christ to save me. You know, people say repentance is a change of a mind or heart, you know, metanoia. And the Christians, sometimes we really, really, really use a theology to really uh, tame, once again, God's love. We say things like this. We repent only, you do repent only once in your life when you receive Christ in your heart. And then after you become a Christian, you don't have to repent. You just confess the sin as you go along. Technically, even though that is right, Somehow we think repentance is just done once. I think not. I think there is an ongoing side of repentance. There is an ongoing side of repentance. Once you have a root, you don't just you know, suck the you know, uh, nourishment one time and then stop. You keep you know, sucking every single day. I think there is an ongoing side of repentance. On what? God's insatiable goodness. God's infinite grace. That's where our repentance, you know, moved on. We repent not because we sin, but we repent because God is good. God is far better than I can ever imagine. His goodness and greatness. That really, really shames me and makes me to repent. Repentance is an ongoing realization. 
and deepening realization of God's goodness. You know, for me, the most amazing part of this story, the caretaker said, I will fertilize it. I will fertilize it. What what do you mean by fertilize? Jesus basically gave his life as a fertilizer to make you and me fruitful in our life. Do you see that? You know, today's story, Luke chapter 13, starts and ends in the same way. Already we saw the people giving Jesus uh, concerns or warning about his journey to Jerusalem, and Jesus, you know, resolute, resounding response about the, you know, call of repentance. Look at the Luke chapter 13, verse 31. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place. Go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. But Jesus replied, Go tell the fox. I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today. And tomorrow, on the third day, I reach my goal. If in any case, I must press on today, tomorrow, and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. Jesus said, I am going to die in Jerusalem for you. I'm going to give my life to you so you will live. He is basically offering his life as a fertilizer so you and I can be fruitful. That's the awe and shock of this message. In order to help us to repent and that the fruit, everlasting fruit, Jesus gave. Himself on the cross. Amen. So last thing about repentance is this. If we really have a repentance, it's not only ongoing. In what way is it ongoing? Not just beating myself. You know what? Ultimate sign of repentance is a longing for God. You're longing for God. Your heart is changed in what? Toward God, for God. You long for God more and more every day. Let me sh- let me let me quote uh, uh, last. Uh, let me let me read our last quote of today. That is come from Saint Augustine and is a meditation on the Psalms. Augustine said this: There is a kind of a prayer without ceasing. It is a longing. He defined the longing for God as a prayer without ceasing. Whatever you may be doing, if you long for the day of everlasting rest, do not cease praying. If you do not wish to cease praying, then do not cease longing. Your persistent longing is your persistent voice. And when when love grows cold, heart grows silent. Burning love is the outcry of the heart. If you are filled with all longing all the time, you will keep crying out. And if your love perseveres, your cry will be heard without fail. Long for God. Do you long for God? Do you long for God only when you have a problem? When you need His help? Do you long for God every day? Because He's the greatest of all. He means everything. We're going to pray, but I, uh, this prayer is 
this is better prayer than prayer that I wrote. So we're going to pray with the prayer of Bonaventure, 13th century church father and, you know, church doctor. Roman Catholic called him the seraphic doctor. You guys remember the uh, Thomas Aquinas was an angelic doctor? You know, seraphim, seraphic is a seraphim, you know, the angel that hover around the, the throne of God. So if uh, Thomas Aquinas angelic doctor, they say Bonaventure is a seraphic doctor. Let's pray with a Bonaventure. Pierce my soul with your love, Lord Jesus Christ. Pierce my soul with your love, so that I may always long for you alone, who are the bread of angels, the fulfillment of a soul's deepest desires. May my heart always hunger and feed on you, so that my soul may be filled with the sweetness in your presence. May my soul thirst for you, who are the source of a life, wisdom, knowledge, and light, and all the riches of God our Father. May I always seek and find you, think about you, speak to you, and do everything for the honor and glory of your name. Be always my hope, my peace, my refuge, and help in whom my heart is rooted, so that I may never separate from you. In the name of our good shepherd, who became the Lamb of God for sinners like us, we pray, Amen.